Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. It's wonderful to be with you and I hope our listeners had good holidays and a good break and uh, we're ready for a new year um, in which we achieve wonderful things and uh, very importantly achieve our spiritual goals and our spiritual potential. Today we're going to look at, I want to start out sharing with you a very powerful message that comes out of this week's Torah reading, this week's Parsha. And then we will look at the life and times of the great Rambam, Rav Moshe ben Maimon. Um, it's the Rambam's Yotzeit this coming um, Friday, which is tomorrow night and Friday. It's the Rambam's 819th Yotzeit. And uh, so it, re- it is appropriate and important to talk about who the Rambam was and what he did and how his impact is still very much felt. Um, within the Jewish world. But firstly, I'd like to mention um, what I think is a fundamental idea and something that's relevant and important to all of us. And we see this week we begin reading Pasha Shmois. So it starts a six-week period called Shovavim. That's the acronym for the six Pashas that are coming up. Shmois Era, Bob Shalach, Yisrael Mishpatim. That spells Shovavim, the first letter of each of those six parashas. The important, significant time for the Jewish people is deep Kabbalistic um, uh, uh, understanding and teaching about the importance of this time, the opportunity of this time. And Parsha Shmois is a departure from Sefer Bereshis. We finished last week with Parsha Vayichi and the end of Sefer Bereshis and the conclusion of the creation of the world and the Avos and Imaus, the great matriarchs and patriarchs of the Jewish people, and the birth of Yaakov's family, which was Shivim and Nefesh, there were 70 souls that were in Mitzrayim. And Sefer Shmois says the Ramban is now describes for us the birth of the nation of Klai Yisrael. Up until now, we've been a family of uh, Abraham and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Rachel and Leah, and their descendants, and uh, we now make the um, we make the shift from being a family to being a nation, and that's what happens at the beginning of Pasha Shmois. Israel, um, the reproduction rate is very high, and they develop into a nation. And as a result of that, um, the classic and uh, ancient anti-Semitic accusation that we have a group of people that are large in number and will undermine the stability of our nation and will be a group that is separate and unto themselves and will side with our enemies and will be a fifth column within our borders and therefore for the survival and for the future of our people, we need to keep this group in check we need to ensure 
that they don't become too powerful and um, too connected and have too much ability and strength within our borders. So that's a classic anti-Semitic accusation. Of course it's false, and of course it's, it's an excuse to oppress the Jewish people and the Jews wherever we go are productive members of society, are loyal citizens of that country that is hosting them. And to accuse us of undermining the future and stability of their place is, is simply not fair and is false. And that's what Pharaoh does, and therefore he's advised by his advisors to oppress the Jewish people, to subject them to backbreaking labor and to slavery. And uh, so the Jewish people begin a uh, many decades of suffering and of hardship and of anguish at the hands of the Egyptians. And Moshe Rabbeinu is sent by Hashem to save the Jewish people, to lead them out of Mitzrayim. And he, he for the first time, he's now he has fled Mitzrayim because he killed an Egyptian um, with the shameless of Hashem, who was who was murdering a Jew, was beating a Jew to death, and he. Um, Moshe then had to flee, having been brought up in Pharaoh's palace, and uh, he now is he, he um, marries the daughter of Yisro in Midian, and he is uh, in his father-in-law's business. He's a shepherd in the fields. He comes across this burning bush, the snare that is burning, but doesn't consume the bush, and Hashem says to him that he is the one entrusted with the all-important mission of saving the Jewish people. And Moshe says, not me, I'm not the right guy for the job, please find somebody else. And uh, he has a whole discussion with Hashem um, regarding his reluctance to be the one to lead the Jewish people out to save the Jewish people. Hashem won't let him back down and says to him that Aaron will be his mouthpiece because Moshe was worried that he was not eloquent and that he stuttered um, and he said you I will protect you and lead you and bring you success in this mission and so Moshe goes into Mitzrayim reunites with his brother Aaron and meets the elders of the Jewish people and when he meets the elders of the Jewish people so they say to him he said I have been sent by God to save the Jewish people and lead them out of Mitzrayim and the elders say, what name of God will be used to save us? And Moshe Rabbeinu hears the question, and he answers them, and he says, Erke Asher Erke. One of the names of God is, I will be that which I will be. And they satisfied with that answer, and then they're in. They're on side, and they um, follow Moshe as the leader, and uh Follow his instructions. So the question is, what's really going on with this dialogue? What, what does it mean? What name of God will redeem us? Um, and then Moshe tells them the name of God, and they are satisfied with that answer. So without going into the deep Kabbalistic understandings of God's names, on a simple level, Eke means that I will be there for you, despite your level which you are now. Despite your current situation, I will be there for you. I will never abandon you. And it's repeated. So Clays will ask him, Moshe Rabbeinu, they were saying to him, how could it be that God will redeem us? We are beyond redemption. We've stooped so low, as the Midrash says, 
that the Jews worshipped idols and the Egyptians worshipped idols. So what was the difference between the Jews and the Egyptians? Um, and that's what they were saying. We, we've already stooped right down to Mem, Test, Share, Tuma, to the 49th level of spiritual impurity. And therefore, how could God save us? How is it possible that God will save us? With what mechanism is God going to save us? And to that Moshe answers, and he says, With God's meta, with God's characteristic of I will be that which I will be, that characteristic will be used to save you. And to think that you're beyond redemption, and to think that you can't be saved, is a mistake. God sent me to tell you that if you move in God's direction, God will save you. God is there for you, and God will never abandon you, and you will be redeemed. And Kai Israel heard that, and they accepted that, and only with the simanim, which we'll get to in a moment, were they, comp- were they convinced by Moshe's argument, and then they, it's, uh, they were satisfied. Um, so it's a very powerful, deep dialogue that's going on, and there's a powerful lesson to learn from it for us, which we will discuss when we return in a moment after this break. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We've been discussing the dialogue between Hashem, between Moshe Rabbeinu and the elders of Klal Yisrael when Moshe was sent to redeem them from Egypt. And they felt that they were beyond redemption. They felt that Hashem wouldn't save them because they couldn't be saved. They, they were beyond the point of no return to which Moshe disagreed and showed them that they were wrong and showed them that it's a mistake to think this way and said to them that God's characteristic of I will be that which I will be. In other words, I'm there for you in the future. I'll always be there for you in the future is the midah through which the mechanism through which Hashem would redeem them. And in fact, the simanim, the signs that Hashem gave Moshe were also to reinforce this same idea, um, this same argument to the Jewish people. First sign Hashem gives Moshe, which he shares with them, is that he takes his stick and he throws it on the ground, his staff, and the staff turns into a snake. And then Moshe Rabbeinu picks up the tail of, of the snake and it turns back into a staff. What is that? Symbolizing that represents the fact that even if Klai Yisrael stooped to the level of the snake, which represents the Yetzirah, the Sitre Achra, the dark, evil spiritual forces, that's what the the, the snake embodies. So even if Klai Yisrael were like the snake, they were completely consumed and controlled by the Yetzirah. Even so, they still can become a staff again. They still can change back into what their essence is and what their potential is. And that's the snake back into the staff. Same thing with Moshe Rabbeinu taking his hand, puts his hand into his cloak, and his hand becomes um, affected with the tumma of Tsaras, which is um, some sort of uh, um, some sort of uh, skin ailment, which is as a result of a spiritual impurity. We don't have such things in our world anymore. So Moshe's hand turns into Soras, a Matsoira, 
And then he puts his hand back into his cloak and he takes it out and it's healed again. So it's the same message also. That even if you're filled with the tumma of a matsoira, which means that you've got some sort of spiritual impurity and deficiency, you still can heal yourself. You still can come back into your pure state and break away from that impurity. So those two messages are powerful signs that Hashem sends with Moshe Rabbeinu to tell them that they can be redeemed and that the Jewish people are not at the point beyond return and that there still is hope and future for them. Eke, Ashe Eke. And in fact, even the burning bush symbolizes this as well. Because the burning bush was Moshe Rabbeinu, he's walking in the wilderness with the sheep and he sees this um, this uh, bush burning and he steps aside and says, Lamo lo He sees the flames and why is it that the bush is not being consumed, not being burned? It's this incredible supernatural sight, which is, which is miraculous. And uh, so one of the explanations, says the Sfasemes, is that um, Hashem tells him this represents the inner fire of the Jewish people, the spiritual fire. It's different from a normal physical fire. A normal fire consumes that which it's burning. But a spiritual fire doesn't consume anything. It represents the power and energy of one's neshama of the soul. And it represents the spiritual fire of the Jewish people that still is alive and well. And is something that even though they may have dropped to a low level, it still is a part of them. It's still part of the essence. It still is very much with Klal Yisrael. And so Moshe Rabbeinu is being sent to access that aspect of the Jewish people, of their neshama, of their burning soul, of their spiritual greatness. And once that is tapped into, so then Hashem will redeem them and take them out of the low place where they are, which is what is symbolized by Mitzrayim, a place of complete spiritual darkness, degeneration, and uh, impurity. So, so the fire of the bush represents the inner spiritual fire of Klaus' role of the Jewish people. And he also shares that message with them. And again, it reinforces his argument that Hashem will save them. Um, and in fact, there's a beautiful teaching of Rav Nachman of Breslov. He says that when people are in a place where they think that they are beyond redemption, he says that's not a consequence of the galus. That's not a result of the circumstances of the exile. That is the galus. Galus means exile of the Jewish people, both physical and spiritual, means that we think we're beyond redemption. That is galus. It's a beautiful, powerful um, teaching of Rabbi Nachman of Breslau. So that is galus, is when we think we're beyond redemption. And so to understand that we always can be redeemed, that Hashem is always there for us, that we, Hashem will never abandon us. That is the way, the, the, the rope that pulls us out of Galus, out of the, the spiritual and psychological state of believing we beyond redemption. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was sent to do. And he was successful in uh, convincing the elders and the people followed the elders. And now they had hope and they had aspirations and were optimistic that Hashem would now save them. So the question is, what is the lesson for us today? What's the relevance to all of us? And that is, uh, I heard this from Rabbi Yosef Elephant, based on many different forums. So Rabbi Elephant explains and says that 
we, Chazal teach us that um, within these interactions of Hashem and Moshe Rabbeinu, um, we see that within these interactions, they um, the concept of um, crying out to Hashem is very much present and there. And the concept of crying out to Hashem, the Chazal said there were four different stages and four different lashonas, four different expressions of crying out. But when Klai Yisrael cried out and they built these different levels um, and and progressed from one to the other, eventually reaching the fourth highest level when they cried out to Hashem, and that resulted in the actual gula, the actual redemption. So that's something we should learn from. And we should realize that wherever we are, and whatever our situation, we'll always have the opportunity. We'll always have the the ability to cry out to God, cry out to Hashem. And when we do so sincerely, and when we do so with a genuine um, uh, plea to the Melech Malchem Lachim, to the King of Kings, to our Kodesh Baruch Hu, so we could always be, Hashem will always save us from any situation we're in if we sincerely turn to Him and cry out to Him. That's a beautiful and powerful concept for all of us because um, we may be in a spiritual galus, a spiritual exile in that we are not connected to Hashem and to the eternal world and to the world of Emuna as we should be. And so if we cry out and ask Hashem to help us reconnect, to help us break through those barriers, to help us access that spiritual part of ourselves and that spiritual part of the universe, we always have that opportunity to do so. And no matter what we've done and no matter how far we've fallen and no matter where we find ourselves, so we always have that um opportunity available that option exists for all of us and so whether it's with to do with our spiritual level and to do with breaking out of the 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 rut that we're in the low point that we're in spiritually or whether it's to do with circumstances in our lives it may be to do with health for ourselves or for a family member or for somebody that we know it might be, be to do with parnosa to do with earning a living and supporting ourselves and our families, maybe to do with shiduchim, looking for a marriage partner, whatever it is, whatever situation we may find ourselves in, um, we always have this opportunity, this rope that is being thrown to us. We just have to grab that rope. And if we grab it and we begin to hold on to it and climb that rope, it can pull us out of our situation. And it's not a, such an easy thing to, to climb that rope. It requires of us a sincere, genuine admission that God is the king of the world and that we surrender ourselves to Hashem um, and uh, and that we are sent to this world in order to serve Hashem. That's what we're doing here. That's why we are um, – that's our job and our mission. And we have – if we accept that and if we – acknowledge that and in the depth of our being we surrender to Hashem and we cry out to Hashem to save us in whatever area it is in our lives and to help us grow spiritually, help us connect to eternity, connect to God, connect to truth. If we do that sincerely and properly, 
So we always will be pulled out of that situation. That's what we learn from these events in this week's Parsha. And that's something that we should remember and hold on to and use in our lives as a very powerful tool um, in our in our journey in this world that we live in. So that's the first message I wanted to share with you. Um, now we can perhaps move on to discussing one of the greatest Jews in the history of Klai Yisrael, and that's Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon the Rambam. The Rambam's Yotzad is tomorrow night. It's Chaf Teves, the 20th of Teves. Um, the Rambam was born in the year 1135 in Cordova in, in Spain, and he marks the end of the golden era of the Jews in Spain. And the Jews enjoyed a number of centuries of prosperity and of development and of success, both spiritually and materially, in Spain, which was known as the Golden Era in Spain. Um, and the Rambam was born at the end of that Golden Era, in the year 1135. The Rambam was the son of Reb Maimon. Reb Maimon was a Dayan in Cordova. Um, the Rambam learnt um, primarily from his father, and he had a second Rebbe. His, um, his other Rebbe was Rav Yosef Ibn Migash, the Re-Migash. And the Re-Migash was a Talmud of the Rif, Rav Yitzhak Al-Fasi. The Rif actually died in the, Rif died at the age of 90 in the year 1103. The Rambam's born 1135. So he's born 30, 32 years after the death of the Rif. But the Re-Migash, who was the Rambam's Rebbe, um, learnt by the Rif when he was a young man, and then he he became the Rambam's Rebbe when the uh, when when he was an older man. So even though there's uh, you know quite a long time between the birth of the Rif and the Rambam, since the Rif lived such a long time, so he actually became a Talmud of the Talmud of the Rif. So that's very significant because the Rif was revolutionary in his Psak Halacha, and the Rambam learnt that derech. The Rambam learnt that style from his Rebbe, the Rimigash, and so he's very close to the the style of the Rif. Um, by the age of 15, the Rambam already had a comprehensive education, of course in Torah, from his father and from the Rimigash, but in many different fields of study. Um, the Rambam already by the age of 15 had a significant knowledge of medicine, of mathematics, of astronomy, of linguistics, the Rambam was a poet. Uh, obviously, he was a very rare mind, one in in a hundred million, if one could say such a thing. And he was just absolutely gifted, and so he was absorbed information of every field of study. Of course, first and foremost, Torah study. Um, and uh, by the age of fifteen, he was already a tremendous Talmud Chacham that knew. Uh, the Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat very well, as well as many of the other these other areas of study. Um, when he was 15 years old, a very significant event took place um, in in Spain, and that was the revolution of the Almohads. Um, the Almohads were a fundamentalist Muslim group that um, that 
created and encouraged revolutions in many different parts of the Muslim world. The, the, the history of the Muslim world is such that there are different phases, there are different waves. Sometimes there are more moderate Muslims um, who um, have power and control of various Muslim countries, um, and they have a less literal interpretation of the Quran. And sometimes there are more fundamentalist groups that take power in different parts of the Muslim world who view the Quran very literally and are very aggressive in their um, aspirations to ensure that all the teaching of the Quran are followed by the strict letter of the law according to their literal interpretation. And we see that in our world today as well. That's also true. We see fundamentalist um, Islamic regimes in control in, in Iran um, and uh, in other parts of the Muslim world, certainly the Saudi royal family. Um, um, we also uh, see the same in, in with ISIS and with uh, Hezbollah and, in, and with um, and with Hamas. They, even though you know we see interesting crossovers between Sunni and Shiites, but the the when the fundamentalists take power, they um, are very aggressive and they are very expansionistic. They want to um, take control and enforce the following of the Quran very closely. And so um, we constantly see that in, 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 the, in the Muslim world and the, the different waves um, have different impacts. So certainly we see that today. Um, and uh, it was the same in the times of the Rambam. So up until 1150, there were moderate Muslims in control of Spain. And that gave space for the Jews to live freely, to practice their religion freely, and to also prosper materially. With the revolution of the Almohads, things changed. And the Almohads, who were a very fundamentalist Muslim group, like the Al-Qaeda of the day and the ISIS of the day, so they wanted the Jews of Cordoba to either convert to Islam or to leave immediately, to be expelled immediately or to convert. So many families, you know, to convert means you lose everything. You leave as a refugee. So many did actually convert. But it was a, a false conversion because they were still practicing Jews secretly, but they pretended to be Muslims in order to be able to stay, um, and many left as well. And, of course, the Rambam's father was a Dayan. He was one of the leaders of the Jewish community. And so he left with his family at the age of 15. They went to Fez in Morocco. They were there for a few years, but then the Omahads reached Fez as well, and they uh, – inspired a revolution in Fez, and they had to flee once more, and they fled to the Atlas Mountains um, in Morocco. And they were there for um, for seven to nine years. As you know, it's, it's, it's like we saw in the Shoah as well when the Nazis came to power in Germany. So many Jews fled, and they went to, Sp they went to um, France, and they went to Holland and Belgium, but uh, to their great despair, they didn't move far enough. They didn't flee far enough, and the Nazis caught up with them in a year or two. So likewise over here, the Rambam's family in Fez were not far enough away from the Almohads, and they had to flee once more, and this time to the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And they remained there for seven to nine years. There's a dispute amongst the scholars exactly how long they were there. And it was there in the Atlas Mountains 
that the Rambam wrote the first of his three major works, which was the Perush Hamishnayos. Um, so we'll discuss how revolutionary that work was of the Rambam that he wrote in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco when we return in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. We'll be discussing the third major work, the first of the three major works of the Rambam, the Perush Hamishnayas. And, uh, that was so significant that it really was a, uh, a, uh, major change to the Jewish world. Because the Rambam actually did so in order to, to introduce, um, certain things to Klaishol, to the Jewish world, which were just Quite unbelievable. Um, what did he? What, what was the significance of the Parish Hamishnayas? Is that um, firstly the Rambam wrote it in Arabic, which was a, a first in the in those times, because he. Uh, the reason why it was so significant is is that um, the significance of that was that because um, most people spoke Arabic at the time. That was the the um, was like the English of the day. It was uh, like today we you know we speak English. That's the international language that we follow. So, but in those days, it was Arabic, and there was no major Jewish works that were written in Arabic. So, the significance of that is that it made it accessible to um, to the uh, Jewish world more than anything else. So. Um, that was the first incredible innovation of the Perush Hamishnayas of the Rambam. Um, secondly, what he did was that um, the at that time theology was uh, not a significant um, part of Judaism. In other words, we had halacha, we had Torah, uh, we knew the mitzvahs of what Hashem wanted of us, but there wasn't. If you look in in the Torah Balpeh, in the Gemara, there's not a lot of theology being discussed. Um, it's mainly centered around the mitzvahs. Um, Judaism is a religion that, the way Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch put it, is he said Judaism was invented by God to describe man as opposed to Christianity, which was invented by man to describe God, which is gives us a feel for, you know, we, we, it's not so much our business to um, regard uh you know, how God works and, and the essence of God, we focus on what our responsibilities and obligations are as Jews. So, but however, at the time, that was a very important subject matter um, within Islam and Christianity in the times of the Rambam in the 14th century. And so the Rambam began to tackle those subjects for the first time. Uh, a Talmud Chochum of this stature would actually go into those um, ideas, those concepts, those philosophical principles of theology, and the Rambam does so very successfully, very powerfully in his parish Hamishnayos, in the introductions to the different sections of the Mishnah. And in fact, you know, we have the famous 13 principles of faith, where you, we uh, uh, pious Jews 
say at the end of Shachris every morning, Animamin, the 13 Animamins. So those 13 Animamins come from one of the introductions in Parish Hamishnas. In fact, at the time when the Rambam wrote it, so there was some controversy and there were many that didn't uh, disagree that these are the 13 principles of faith and faith and, and there was a lot of discussion about it. I mean, today, as a result of the great stature of the Rambam and his great genius, which is universally accepted in all of the Jewish people, so we accept the you know, those three 13 principles as the fundamental principles of our faith wasn't necessarily the sa- th- that way at the time, but nonetheless, he was the first one, the Rambam, to start talking about these things and to describe them and his knowledge and his stature and his comprehensive understanding of all of Torah made these ideas um, the foundation of these principles within Judaism. So that was the second um, important innovation of the Perush HaMishnayas. And thirdly, we see that he actually wrote Psach Halacha. So usually on the, the works with regard to Tosha Valpeh, which is the oral tradition, so the concepts are discussed, but the actual halacha is not necessarily um, given to us. The psak, which means the, uh, the, the cutting of what the outcome and conclusion is, are usually not described. The concepts are described, the arguments are described, the, the understanding of the arguments are described, not the psak. In the Rambam's Parish Hamishnayas, he actually brings the psak halacha, which is following the style of, of the riff. The his Rebbe's Rebbe, the Rimagash's Rebbe, the Rif. So those are three very fundamental um, breakthroughs and revolutionary aspects of the Perish Hamishnais, which were written by the Rambam um, in the in in the caves of the Atlas Mountains. He was 24 years old when he wrote the Perish Hamishnais, which is quite unbelievable. Um, and still today, the Rambam's Perish Hamishnais is studied and is a fundamental work in within Klai Yisrael. Um, the Rambam then went to Cairo. It was called Fustat Cairo at the time. Um, there was a big halakhic question whether he was allowed to actually be there or not. Um, he uh, he went there um, because he felt compelled to go. He had nowhere else to go. He tried to go to Eretz Yisrael. It was during the, this is now the third crusade, and he received information that if he did go to Eretz Yisrael, he would be kidnapped. Because he was such a prominent figure in the Jewish world, it was a common thing at that time that he would be kidnapped and killed unless a massive ransom was paid. So he couldn't go to Eretz Israel. He had good uh, intel that that was the case. And so the only real place he could go where a community which was safe for him to go was in uh, Egypt, in Cairo. So even though it says in the Torah that a Jew shouldn't settle in Egypt unless he has no choice, uh, and the Rambam was... He was a prolific writer with many, many letters that he wrote. And some of those letters he, he, he writes... Um, this is letter was written by Moshe ben Mamun Hasfadi, however, who's over on three transgressions every day by living in Egypt, because he had three prohibitions of living in Egypt, but unless you got no choice, which he felt was obviously the case. Um, the Rambam was, he had a very close relationship with his brother, and his brother um, tragically passed away. His brother was a merchant, and he went on a, on a trading trip, a merchant trip, and he never returned. He was he died at sea in a storm, and this had a massive impact on the on the life of the Rambam. Um, firstly, because he was so close to his brother, and he was being supported financially by his brother, who was successful. Um, and so he now had to support his family and his brother's family after the death of his brother. His renown as a physician was already um, 
uh, had already spread far and wide his reputation in Egypt. And Saladin, who was the king of Egypt, who was the ruler in Egypt, found out about this brilliant physician who lived in Egypt, this Jewish physician. And so Saladin commissioned him to be the doctor of his household, of his harem. And, uh, you know, you couldn't refuse the king when the king made such a request. And so that became the occupation of the Rambam. Um, and that's how he supported himself, his family, and his brother's family. And he writes about, you know, his day and the setup of his day, what he did and how, you know, the hours of his day and how he would have to travel to the palace and he had to treat all the members of the palace and then he would come back and then he would deal with the Jewish community and all the questions the Shilas had in the Jewish community and then he would do some learning, he would try and write and, you know, he hardly slept. Um, he he had a full day and he was completely um, consumed with these responsibilities which were absolutely mammoth at the time. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we're discussing the great and holy Rambam and his tremendous impact on the Jewish people. Um, it is his 819th Yotzeit tomorrow night and Friday the 20th of Teves. And just to end off, um, to mention the magnus opus of the Rambam, the Mishnah Torah. He wrote a work called the Mishnah Torah in which the Rambam said that if you learn my work, my book, which he also called the Yad HaZaka, which is a plan of words in the Torah, um, so you won't need to learn anything else. In other words, within this body are all of the halachas and all of the ideas, all of the knowledge that you need to practice as a loyal, holy, faithful Jew in this world. And he divided it up into four sections. That's why it's a yad, because the yad is the gematria 14. You dial it. Also, there's 14 joints in the hand. And um, in those 14 sections, it, 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 it uh, encompasses the comprehensive practice of a Jew in this world. Every halacha, everything that a Jew needs to know is incorporated into these 14 sections of the yad hazaka. Um, and it was it, it, the, the genius of it is just indescribable for the Rambam to be able to consolidate and to crystallize all of Jewish knowledge, all of Jewish teaching, the entire Torah into this book, book the Mishnah Torah, is just mind-boggling. It's just breathtaking. It's encyclopedic. It encompasses and um, and covers everything that a Jew needs to know. Its organization is perfect. It's it's uh, systematic in, in, in the way the different sections are uh, placed. The different ideas are placed in different sections is absolutely brilliant. It's a work, was work, a work of complete and immense genius that the Rambam brought to the world. And uh, there's no Jewish home, uh, Jewish-based midrash without a Rambam, the Mishnah Torah, which really covers everything that a Jew needed to know in order to live as a Jew. Um, the Rambam had the intention that uh, as a result of writing his book, so it would minimize the need for other books. But what is ironic, he didn't write footnotes. So when one learns the Talmud and then one sees the Rambam, so you have to fill in the gaps to see how he got there. 
So there have been more books written on the Rambam's Mishnah Torah than any other book that has been written in the history of Klaus. <laughs> well, you know, there, I think, I don't know any other book, but, but there's more than 10,000 works that were written in order, uh, on the Mishnah Torah, the Yara Chazaka, um, in order, you know, to understand the Rambam's thought process and the way he got to his Psakalocha. So we'll just end off with what's written on the grave of the Rambam. The Rambam died in the year 1204. He's buried in Tiveri and Tiberias. And on his grave is written, Mi Moshe ad Moshe lo kam kamoshe. From Moshe Rabbeinu until Moshe ben Maimon, nobody, there was nobody else like Moshe. In other words, that's how great the Rambam was. That's how much we respect his knowledge and his scholarship and his righteousness, his his piety within the Jewish people and uh, his effect and the groundwork that he laid and his guidance for Klai he actually had major political effect as well, don't have time to go into it now, was immense and the example that the Rambam was and the works that he wrote are very much a part of the Jewish people today. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.